Like parts one through three, today's episode includes a content warning for mentions and discussion of suicide, miscarriage, infidelity, the death of children, the death of a parent, and the death of a spouse. Take care, listeners. I also just want to apologize. Um, You might hear some dog sounds in the background of this episode today because I have a very needy puppy following me around. His name is Max. He's adorable, but um, loud. This is Victorian Scribblers an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Listeners, welcome to episode 15, Mary Shelley Part 4, the final installment of our coverage of the life of Mary Shelley. Unfortunately, Eleanor isn't able to join me today, so like Mary, I'll be carrying on alone. I definitely can't afford the license, so just imagine all by myself fading in here. Too soon? Too soon. I know. Anyway, when we last left Mary in the aftermath of Percy's sudden death on July 8th, 1822, she had just managed to lay claim to a macabre memento that Trelawney had created, Percy's preserved heart. The lore around Mary's life leaves out the little fact that she's not the one who ordered his heart to be preserved, and I think that adds a new dimension to our understanding of her. Mary couldn't very well leave such a precious part of the man she'd loved in the hands of his so-called friends, so even if she didn't particularly want the visceral reminder of what she'd lost, she had to keep it now. While I don't want to take away a goth icon, I think that it's interesting to understand Mary not as somebody who's like reveling in the darkness of death surrounding this great loss of her life, but as somebody who is um, reacting rather than acting at this moment, just trying to get it together and carry on with life when this is not the future that she's imagined at all. Not content to traumatize her by forcing her to uh, lug around a literal piece of her dead husband's body, Percy's friends turned their backs on Mary um, without really explaining why. After the funeral, Mary stayed with Byron and Hunt in Italy for a while, but Hunt in particular was cold and rude to her. Jane, it seems, had been gossiping about Mary's struggling relationship with Percy for some time, turning Hunt and others against Mary by claiming that she was cold, uncaring, and an unfaithful wife. Percy himself had complained about Mary to Hunt during his last visit with Hunt, which let me just remind you, had occurred a little bit over two weeks after Mary almost died of a miscarriage when he left Mary alone to go joy sailing. Uh, So if anyone is in the wrong here and deserves to be complained about, it's not Mary. But even though the Hunts had bought into Jane's lies and weren't really on hashtag Team Mary anymore, if they ever had been, 19th century social rules meant that they weren't super confrontational about it. They just kind of did snide remarks, but they didn't ask her to leave. So Mary and Percy Jr., Percy Florence really, but I'll just call him Percy Jr. as shorthand, continued to live with the Hunts for over a year after the funeral. That didn't mean that Mary didn't sense their coldness and disapproval. She did, and it hurt. With nobody to pour out her heart to, Mary wrote to Percy himself in the pages of her journal, quote, It is not true that this heart was cold to thee. Did I not in the deepest solitude of thought repeat to myself my good fortune in possessing you? End quote. 
In fact, in a very 19th century move, Mary would turn to the page for solace again and again in the aftermath of Percy's death. She'd stopped journaling on July 8th, the day Percy failed to show up or to get back home after his trip. Now, in October of that year, she started a new journal. She called it her Journal of Sorrow. In the first entry, she kind of contextualizes that name. Quote, The Journal of Sorrow, begun 1822, but for my child it could not end too soon. End quote. And the first entry, after this little sort of epigraph, uh, sheds more light on her state of mind right around this time. So it's dated October 2nd, 1822, and it's written in Genoa. So Mary writes, quote, On the 8th of July, I finished my journal. This is a curious coincidence. The date still remains, the fatal 8th, a monument to show that it all ended then. And I begin again? Oh, never. But several motives induce me, when the day has gone down and all is silent around me, steeped in sleep, to pen, as occasion wills, my reflections and, re and feelings. First, I have now no friend. For eight years, I communicated with unlimited freedom with one whose genius, far transcending mine, awakened and guided my thoughts. I conversed with him, rectified my errors of judgment, obtained new lights from him, and my mind was satisfied. Now I'm alone. Oh, how alone. The stars may behold my tears, and the winds drink my sighs, but my thoughts are a sealed treasure which I can confide to none. White paper, wilt thou be my confidant? Her fellow widow, Jane Williams, headed back to England in September of that year. Mary was saddened to see her go, but what she didn't know was that Jane had been spreading nasty rumors about Mary, Percy, and her own relationship with Percy, as I mentioned briefly. So the two parted on what Mary thought were good terms, and this won't be the last we hear of Jane in this episode. Mary, for her own part, couldn't bear to leave Italy yet. So she stayed with the Hunts, and the Hunts, in a party with Byron, kind of just moved a little bit around Italy throughout the summer and fall. In this new and lonely era of her life, Mary's goal was to use her wordsmithing talent to make a living for herself and a son. See, Percy's dad, Sir Timothy, was in no hurry to pay Percy's regular income to Mary. And Mary was beginning to suspect that he didn't plan to do so ever, despite the fact that she was Percy's legal wife. So Mary poured herself into studies and work. As Eleanor and I mentioned in the last episode, writing had always been one of the ways she was closest to Percy and one of the ways she worked through her grief. And it seems that she tried to find that communion with Percy and that solace again with every word she wrote and edited. In the year after Percy's death, she started The Liberal, a literary journal that Percy had daydreamed about launching. The first issue came out on October 15th, 1823, and it included some of the work that Percy had been had completed just before his death. The second issue included a story of hers, something she'd written just before Percy's death, um, in addition to work by Byron and Hunt and etc. Determined both to make a living with and find solace in the written word, Mary confided to Jane that, quote, it is only in books and literary occupations that I shall ever find alleviation, end quote. I think that she knew, even then, that she wouldn't remarry. Now, side note, if you're wondering what happened to Claire in the aftermath of Percy's death, well, despite her late-life renunciation of free love, Claire didn't miraculously learn that the patriarchy was priming her to compete with her fellow women, and especially her sister. So she continued to sort of compete with Mary in a variety of ways. Um, remember our MVP from last episode? Mary Wollstonecraft's old friend, Mrs. Mason? Well, she'd been helping Claire shape up to become a governess. And Claire had transformed this act of salvaging a life after a series of terrible decisions into becoming an independent woman like Mary Wollstonecraft, um, going so far as to turn down at least one proposal in her request to be independent. Which, awesome. Good for you, Claire. Except... 
that she then proceeded to throw it in Mary's face. Claire was still trying to one-up Mary as, quote, the true daughter of Wollstonecraft, and she thought that she was succeeding, but she still hadn't managed to land a governess gig, and when the income Percy had been funneling to her disappeared, she tried to get that money from Mary, despite the fact that Mary's writing income was very tiny, um, and Mary had her son to feed, too. So when the little bit of money that Mary could share didn't satisfy her, uh, Claire moved to Vienna to be near her brother. Remember him? Charles? The other <laughs> random part of this family that we never talked about? Um, yeah, that brother. So to be fair to Claire, she was still mourning the loss of her daughter, Alba, and she was probably frustrated that Mary was so lost in her own grief that they couldn't really support each other. But that's how things were, so um, Claire's departure left Mary almost all alone. She had basically one friend, and that, surprisingly, was Byron. It turns out that Byron was loyally hashtag Team Mary the whole time, um, which I'll now add to the top of the list the short list of good things Byron did. Um, Byron helped Mary stay financially afloat by hiring her to copy his works in progress um, and actually workshopping his ideas with her and talking writing business with her. While she was doing all of this work to make ends meet, Mary did her best to pretend everything was okay, putting on a brave face for her friends and probably especially for Percy Jr. Um... Partly, I think this is because she was extremely private about her inner life, but partly it's pride and partly it's being the strong one because she's all she's got left. She wrote to Mrs. Gisborne, another of her mother's friends, noting that the Hunts and Byron had, quote, no idea of what I suffer, for I talk, I, and smile as usual, and none are sufficiently interested in me to observe that my eyes are blank. I think that's just so sad and chilling. Trelawney, who I hope you all absolutely loathe after the shenanigans at the end of the last episode, swept back into town with a new married mistress at this point, and basically disowned Mary when she suggested that if it was true love, they didn't need to keep the mistress's marriage a secret because they'd risk everything for each other. So let's just say our girl Mary is still a romantic to the bone, even though life has battered her down. So Mary spends the rest of the year trying to make ends meet as a writer, but while she doesn't have Percy's income anymore, she still has all of his bills. And even though Byron, with a naive trust in the system that really spells out his privilege, assured her that Sir Timothy hadn't reached out, not because he was, like, planning to stiff her, but because the lawyers must still be working through things, Mary knew better. Uh, she saw the signs. She was financially and emotionally on her own. Throughout this period, William Godwin, Mary's dad, had been writing and suggesting that she should come home to live with him, where he can help her deal with Sir Timothy. And with only 30 pounds left to her name, now isn't that a familiar number, Mary decides to do just that. But before she can even pack up, she gets news from Sir Timothy's lawyer. Basically, Sir Timothy's lawyer explains... Percy's dad has no plans to support Mary. Uh, in his opinion, she had, quote, estranged my son's mind from his family and all his first duties in life, end quote. The lawyer also noted that Sir Tim would support Percy, but only if Mary relinquished custody. And Byron, ironically, predictably, unselfconsciously, told her to accept. But Mary still reeling from how well that had gone for Claire, flat-out refused. Wisely. Something else important happened before Mary could head back to England. She had a serious talk with Lee Hunt. See, Hunt had been paying attention to Mary all winter long, and though Mary felt that nobody noticed her blank eyes, Hunt had started to be able to recognize the subtle signs of her deep and vast but quiet grief. He came to the conclusion that Jane had been lying to him, and he wrote to confront Jane about the lie. Basically, she was like, yeah, so what? Uh, she came clean, but not in a remorseful way. She wasn't sorry, and she wasn't about to change her tune. Hunt made up with Mary, though. 
So on the eve of her departure from Italy, she could boast two whole friends. Mary and Percy Jr. arrived in London on August 25th, 1823. Mary would turn 26 exactly five days from her arrival there, uh, and Percy Jr. was a couple of months shy of four years old. It had been five years since Mary was in London last, so this was baby Percy's first time. And in those five years, things had changed radically. The Industrial Revolution and increasing urbanization had made their mark on the city. Now there were gas lights everywhere, canals cutting up neighborhoods, the most prominent being Regent's Canal, factories spewing smoke into the air, mass-produced clothes and home goods being sold um, in addition to like the artisanal kinds of things you could expect. Luckily, Mary's dad and little brother picked them up at the wharf and guided them home. Because otherwise, Mary was convinced she could have never found her way. Even if London wasn't familiar to Mary anymore, she, or at least her work, was still familiar to it. In fact, she found an adaptation of Frankenstein playing at the Lyceum Theater on her arrival, and she was apparently very, very excited to see the stage version bring her novel to life in a new way. Copyright laws weren't what they are now back then, so Mary never saw any money from that production or any of the many others that followed, but it filled her with a sense of pride nonetheless to see her work adapted for the stage. Back at home, in the Godwin household, Mary got to know her family in a new way, especially baby brother William, who was now a sassy young adult and made Mary laugh by calling their dad, Godwin, quote, the old gentleman, end quote, which is like the 1800s version of Pops, or something equally playful and irreverent. Fun and games aside, Mary got back in touch with Sir Timothy's lawyer right away, and it seems that Percy's dad's harsh stance had softened just a smidge, so he now agreed that he would pay Mary 200 pounds a year, half of it for her and half of it for Percy. So that is roughly equivalent to 17,800 pounds, or nearly 22,000 US dollars in today's money. So it's a poverty line, basically, um, especially when you have a growing son on your hands in a city as expensive as London. Not only was it a pittance, it came with some steep conditions. The first, Mary was not allowed to publish any of Percy's works or to write a biography or anything of that nature about him. The second, she had to stay in England. If she failed to abide by these rules, not only would Sir Tim stop paying the money, but he'd seize custody of Percy. And remember, this is pre any sort of legislation that allowed women to maintain property or custody of their children. So Sir Tim could make good on those threats, and Mary knew it. Now, as you might expect, as a writer, Mary had been planning to honor Percy and feed her son by producing a biography and added collections of Percy's work. As you might also expect, her literary circle of friends fully expected her to do this. But her hands were tied. Percy Jr. was all she had left, and she would die before she jeopardized her uh, ability to raise him. Listener, there's a meme that perfectly sums up Mary's life right about now. It's the dog sitting at a table, drinking coffee, while everything is on fire around it. The this is fine meme. Mary just kept working and telling herself, this is fine. Making matters even worse, good old dad expected Mary to support him financially, much as he'd always expected Percy to do. So Mary, dutiful daughter... Uh, and loving mother, kept writing. She started writing for magazines, in addition to working on novels, and basically doing anything with words that would pay. And she pinched pennies as best she could to get by in London. But she started daydreaming about moving out of dad and stepmom's house. She wanted to move to be near to, now here's where she loses me, Jane Williams. See, Jane was living in a sort of suburb, Kentish Town, and Mary still didn't know about Jane's hurtful lies, so she sort of concocted this vision, this idyllic vision, of her and Jane and their children living in the countryside 
together and sort of like frolicking in sunlit fields and, you know, it sounds great, right? Before she could act on that daydream, though, Mary decided to take a big risk. She would publish an edited collection of Percy's poetry anonymously. Because loophole, right? And I just want to quote a couple of paragraphs from Gordon here, because hecking heck. Gordon writes, quote, Mary decided to produce a volume of Shelley's work anonymously. However, this project was bigger than it initially seemed. Shelley had never been a tidy person, and his papers were in greater disarray than Mary had expected. He had written when inspired, on whatever was available, and had jammed scraps and notebooks into his writing desk, scribbled on the backs of envelopes, and stuck pieces of paper into whatever book he happened to be reading. Many poems had been composed on different sheets, making it difficult to tell where new poems began and old ones ended. Those poems that were written on one piece of paper were often lodged between doodles of trees and sailboats. For Mary, daunting though the project was, sifting through Shelley's papers helped her resurrect her husband's presence, giving her the sense that they were still in communication, that he was still speaking to her. She made the additions and deletions he seemed to indicate, choosing final versions and piecing together lines written in different locations. Fortunately, she was not working with entirely foreign material. She and Shelley had talked about some of the drafts, the collaborative spirit between husband and wife that had begun in the joint journal in Paris when Mary was 16 and Shelley 21, held even after his death. But there were also plenty of poems that they had not discussed and that Mary was reading for the first time. Many of these had been written during the tragedies of the last years and lamented his loneliness or praised Jane at her expense. As difficult as these were to read, Mary knew that if she wanted the public to see his best work, she would have to push herself to piece together these verses as well. This was a painful enterprise, but she did not hesitate, as she believed that her personal feelings did not matter when it came to art. Great literature was great literature, even if it cost her pain. Accordingly, she set herself the task of sewing stanzas together, reordering, deleting, ultimately creating one of her greatest and most unsung achievements, a coherent collection of Shelley's work. Interestingly, despite the significant role Mary played in bringing his work into public view, no one has ever accused Shelley of not writing his own poems, although Mary's contributions are at least as substantial as his edits were to Frankenstein. This is because, unlike Shelley, Mary covered her tracks. Although she wrote an anonymous preface to the edition, not once did she refer to her own editorial role. On the other hand, she had to hide her identity from Sir Timothy, but she also wanted to present Shelley as a great artist who needed no editing. In addition, she was aware that, as a woman, she would face criticism for daring to tamper with her husband's work, no matter how much everyone disapproved of Shelley in the first place. Within six months, Posthumous Poems was ready for publication. It went on sale in June of 1824 and sold briskly until Sir Timothy got wind of it. Although he could not prove it, he knew this was Mary's doing. Furious at his daughter-in-law, he stopped sales, forcing the publisher to recall unsold copies, but he was too late to stop Mary's vision of Shelley from taking hold. End quote. So, once again, that's Charlotte Gordon's summary of the work that Mary did to basically preserve Percy's literary reputation. I thought this was a great illustration not only of the sort of odds and like the the scope of the work that she did, but also of the stakes. So like what would have happened if she didn't do this work and and still she doesn't get the credit that she's due as a writer, even to this day. It's astounding. So Mary's life in 1824 was eventful, to say the least. Not only did she publish this anonymous collection, she also began drafting her novel, The Last Man, and as she was writing, she received news that Byron had died in the war for Greek independence. Um, so lots of big sort of highs and lows, and um, as part of preparing for this season, I read The Last Man, and I'll just say that um, 
I think she takes a lot of inspiration from people in her life at this time, especially Byron. Um, not to say that this is an autobiographical novel at all. Um, I don't want to reduce the the scope of the art or the kind of uh, quality of the art. I don't. Yeah, I'm not trying to diminish its um, uh, creativity and originality. Um, all writers pull from life in a variety of ways as they draft, um, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously. But um, just that this, in addition to being an important work of science fiction, is a window into her feelings about life at the time and her sense of um, solitude and alienation. In the summer of 1824, Mary decided to make her daydream to move to Kentish Town to be closer to Jane, a reality. Her life there with Jane was pretty cozy, though Jane kept being a terribly gossipy backstabber, uh, predictably. At some point, Jane started a fling with Thomas Hogg, uh, you know, um, Percy's college BFF, who really, really liked getting it on with Percy's former lovers, which fine, you do you, Jane. But there's more to this story, apparently. Now, I haven't done the archival research, so I can't say one way or the other, but it seems like Mary's feelings for Jane may have extended beyond sort of friends and widows in arms to something more, to borrow a term from my fair lady, loverly. Mary had had her fair share of would-be suitors since Percy's death, Lots of men wanted to get with her, and even Jane, in part because of Percy's reputation, in part because of their connection to Byron, and in part because there was a real vogue for tragedy. But while Jane dallied with Hogg to pass the time, Mary didn't think anyone was worthy to fill the role that had been Percy's. Uh, she was possibly also deeply in crush with Jane. Now, pages of Mary's journal are ripped out around this period, which sort of might indicate something in itself. Um, often either the journalists themselves, or often the person themselves or their descendants would sort of censor the journal for posterity, because even then people knew that your journal or diary was not entirely just written for yourself, right? It's written for your descendants or for archivists to discover and tell your story one day. And so protecting one's reputation or one's family's reputation extended to sort of like burning the books or tearing out whole chunks. Hi, Max. But even without these pages uh, to tell us what's really going on, there are some indications that Mary might be the early 19th century bi icon you've been searching for all along. Uh, she convinced Jane to send Hogg packing at, at one point. Max, what's up, dude? It's very difficult to podcast with you breathing so hard. Yeah, can you quiet? She convinced Jane to send Hogg packing, uh, and worked to deepen their own friendship in the meantime, giving Jane nicknames like, quote, Fairy Girl, end quote, and Bright Lily, uh, sending Jane letters that are hardcore flirty, apparently. In a letter to Hunt, Mary confessed that, quote, the hope and consolation of my life is the society of Jane. To her, for better or worse, I am wedded, end quote. So, it's a possibility. Um, and it wouldn't have been that unusual in Mary's eyes. She had lots of friends and acquaintances of what the 19th century would have called the sapphic persuasion. So she knew women who were in romantic relationships, um, including a friend of hers named Dottie, uh, I love her name, who happened to be hopelessly in love with Mary, but was also sort of openly into ladies. So about a year and a half goes by, and Mary and Jane are living in some version of domestic bliss. It's the spring of 1826, and um, Hogg comes back on the scene. Jane maybe holds him off for a while, but by December of that year, he sweeps her off her feet. Soon enough, she's pregnant, and she confesses the fact to Mary in February of 1827. Mary sticks around for two more months, but leaves in May of 1827 with a woman named Isabel Robinson, a 19-year-old brunette. Um, Isabel had a secret that took Mary's mind off her own pain. She had a secret child. 
She was living with her father, and her father would disown her if he learned the truth. Mary, taking after her late husband, was, and, and her mother, actually, was a sucker for a woman in distress. So she concocted a plan. Remember Dottie, the hopelessly in love friend I mentioned like 30 seconds ago? Well, she was pretty androgynous, apparently. Uh, so Mary suggested that Dottie could pose as Isabel's husband, live with Isabel and her child for a few years in a foreign country, and then pretend to die so that Isabel could return to England as a respectable woman, i.e. a widow. By all accounts, they did, and they pulled it off. If you're wondering who or what the inspiration for this plan was, let me refer you to our ongoing VIP, <clears throat> MVP, Mrs. Mason. Young Mrs. Mason had apparently disguised herself as a man to attend medical school back in the day, and uh, at some point had told Mary this story. So, heck yeah. Mrs. Mason, you continue to astound, amaze, and inspire me. <laughs> anyway, before Dottie and Isabel left, Isabel took Mary aside and shared some distressing news. Jane had been spreading rumors about her this whole time. So, thanks to Isabel... Mary finally knows the horrible truth. Her relationship with Jane, whatever it had been, could never be the same. Mary wanted to rush to confront Jane, but right about that time, Jane's baby died. So Mary actually rushed to comfort her frenemy instead, waiting until the next year to talk about Jane's betrayal. When they ultimately did have that conversation, Jane begged forgiveness but Mary couldn't entirely forgive, and she certainly was not going to forget, though she didn't cut off their friendship either. Jumping ahead to the summer of 1828, another old frenemy came back on the scene. Trelawney. Did I say that with enough ire? <laughs> Despite everything, Mary sort of, kind of wondered if there was still a spark there. She'd been pen-palling it with him all this time, in fact. But Trelawney made a point of avoiding Mary, and then judging her for not publishing Percy's works. So, that was that. And because bad things always come in threes, guess who else swept back into England right about then? That's right, Claire. Claire moved in with Mary, and, with the audacity only siblings can muster, proceeded to criticize all of Mary's life choices while also living off of her earnings and eating her food never taking pains to ask why Mary wasn't publishing Percy's work, or why she was striving for, quote, a share in the corruption of society, end quote. I love Gordon's take on the eternal debate over whether or not Mary, once a radical figure, sold out to conventionality in this period of her life. Gordon writes, quote, Mary shut herself away each morning, writing stories to pay the rent, her resistance to injustice would always have to be underground, but it would not be any the less formidable, end quote. This seems like a good time for a break. When I get back, we'll discover what else life has in store for Mary, and how she might keep her underground revolution going. Maybe there will be a little bit of romance, too. Hi listeners, I'm back, and I want you to travel with me to the year 1832. It's spring, and Mary is 34 years old. It's been 10 years since Percy died. In those years, Mary's learned to stand on her own two feet. She's learned some lessons about friendship and trust. She's grown as a writer, and she's shepherded her son, Percy Jr., into teenagehood. It's at this point in her life that serious romance comes calling again in the form of 31-year-old Aubrey Beauclerk. Aubrey was an aristocrat. He admired Mary's writing and her politics. He'd been raised by his mother and grown up with a bunch of sisters, so he knew how to hang out with women. <laughs> he had two illegitimate children and had taken the radical step of giving them his surname, which 
from Mary's perspective, was promising. Mary was already friends with Aubrey's sister, Guy, whom she had supported in the wake of a scandalous affair. Mary, as you know, was never one to judge. Before all that, though, Mary had often visited Guy's home, impressing people with her quiet reserve, her beauty, her ability to relate to teenagers, and her double-jointed wrists. Yeah, you heard that right. Apparently, it was a party trick of hers to bend her fingers backward in a way that would be impossible for most people. <laughs> anyway, Mary and Aubrey became very close while, while Guy's marriage exploded. They started taking long walks together, attending the theater, and finagling some moments to find what Mary called, quote, ineffable bliss, end quote, together. Which meant, you know, sexy times. It's easy to understand some of what drew Mary to Aubrey. He fought for the abolition of slavery, which would go through the very next year, supported the Irish, was pro-reform. He was, in short, pretty radical. But he was looking for a wife that could help him with his political career. And despite their connection, Mary would never be that woman. There was too much scandal still attached to her name. Not that she fully recognized that fact. She invited Aubrey home to meet her father, and wrote to Jane to tell her old friend about her new romance. They spent a year dating, as it were, but it couldn't last. Mary came down with the flu, uh, and was sick for weeks. She didn't hear from Aubrey the entire time, only finding out when she got well that he'd proposed to another woman. Heartbroken, she moved out of London. She rented a little house in Harrow, which we mentioned last season in Francis Milton Trollope Part 1 or 2. Uh, Percy Jr. was already attending school there anyways, um, so it made financial sense. And in that little house, she strove to forget her woes by writing a new novel, Lodore. Percy Jr., for his part, did not resent his mother's sudden proximity. He wasn't like a lot of kids, uh, and he wasn't really what she had expected as her own or Percy's son. He wasn't a brilliant revolutionary like either of his parents. Percy was basically a Hufflepuff in all the best ways. He was shy, he slouched, he had no interest in poetry, but he loved his mother fiercely. He just happened to enjoy more conventional things like riding horses, hunting, sailing. I hope unlike his father, he at least learned how to swim. Finances were still tight all this time, Moving to Harrow had helped, because London is expensive, so of course moving out of it would help, but paying for a public school education was hard. And in addition to heartbreak, Mary suffered another personal loss around this time. Her little brother William died of cholera. So Mary was relieved to be contacted by one of her father's friends, Dionysus Larder, about a new project, the Cabinet Encyclopedia which he wanted her to compose biographical essays for. Remember, she loses herself and distracts herself from her grief in work. So she set to work in November of 1833, and this was a project she'd be involved with for the next four and a half years. Between November of 1833 and May of 1838, she'd write more than 50 mini-biographies of, quote, eminent, end quote, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, and French male writers and scientists. I want to say that basically Mary did a PhD in history slash biography, because in writing these biographies, she put her own language skills to the test, creating her own translations from which to work. Records show that Mary wrote at least 75% of the 1,757-page encyclopedia. That's 1,318 pages. So she wrote like, I don't know, six dissertations in length alone? I think we'll try to read at least an excerpt of one of these in the writing episode, too, so uh, come back in a couple of weeks for that. Anyway, Mary noted that her, quote, life and reason were saved by these lives, end quote. They gave her something besides the heartbreak to focus on. They let her meditate on the lives and losses of others. As part of her work, Mary dug up whatever she could find about the women in these great men's lives, researching their wives, mothers, sisters, lovers, and friends, and she pitched a project about them to the publisher. Predictably, he refused to print it, so she continued to include whatever information about them she could sneak into the men's biographies. During this time, her father's ill health 
Claire's governess gig, and Jane's new baby all conspired to keep Mary pretty isolated from her ever-shrinking social circle. So she spent her time working or with her son. But by 1835, she had cabin fever. As she wrote to her mother's old friend, Mariah Gisborne, quote, you can consider me as one buried alive, end quote. The weight of sole responsibility for her own and her son's life was at times almost too much to bear, and in a fit of anguish, Mary wrote that she had, quote, bartered her existence for Percy's good, end quote. But for the most part, she doted on Percy, mediocre teddy bear of a son that he was. He was a seized get degrees kind of scholar, more interested in horses and dogs than books. In 1835, just before Percy finished at Harrow, Mary received word that Mariah Gisborne, aka Mariah Reveille, the woman who nursed infant Mary back to health after her mother's death, had passed away. Her remaining connections to her mother, to her legacy, to her revolutionary life, were slipping away. The sedateness of Harrow closed in on her, and in a panic, she withdrew Percy from school and moved back to London. Instead of dawdling at Harrow, Mary reasoned, Percy could work with a tutor to get ready for university. And, in the process, she could get closer to her family, her past, and her heritage. And maybe Mariah Gisborne's death had shown her the signs of what was to come. In the spring of 1836, her 80-year-old father, Godwin, came down with a cough and a fever. By April, it was pretty clear that this was a serious illness. Mary and Mary Jane took shifts, staying with him around the clock because he had a, quote, great horror of being left to the servants, end quote. For the most part, he was too weak and delusional to talk. Still, everyone was in denial. Godwin talked of his own recovery, and everyone cheerfully joined in. But on April 7th, 1836, he breathed his last. Godwin's will stipulated that he be buried as near to Wollstonecraft as possible, so Mary Jane must have been thrilled. And poor Mary, watching the gravediggers uncover her mother's coffin to bury her father, must have been doubly traumatized. Now, Mary had to take charge of her stepmother, Mary Jane. If you've somehow managed to skip the last three episodes, let me just note here that there was never any love lost between these women. But Mary set out to get Mary Jane a pension from the state and chipped in what she could from her own meager income, while Mary Jane's own children continued living abroad, blissfully irresponsible. <laughs> Mary also added regular visits to Mary Jane to her schedule, even though they still basically hated the sight of each other. Ah, the things we do for family. Another outcome of Godwin's death was that Mary was made his literary executor, charged with writing his biography and editing any manuscripts for publication. Which is ironic, since he'd stuffed her manuscript for Matilda into a trunk and it would not be published until the 20th century, but who am I to judge? Writing her father's biography was a massive undertaking, because he'd saved everything in his own personal archive without taking the pains to organize it at all. He used initials and personal shorthand without ever writing down a key or a legend. Mary tried her best, knowing that her father would have considered it a duty if the tables were turned. But she also knew that biography could be disastrous. Godwin had published her mother's biography in the wake of her death, and basically wrecked her mother's reputation. And some of the details of her father's life had implications for Mary's own reputation, and Percy's reputation, and her son's future and happiness. So, though she worked on it for four years... Mary ultimately made a choice to do what was best for herself and her living family members, giving up on the project entirely. That didn't mean she forgave herself for quitting, though. She guilt-tripped herself and racked her brain to try to find a compromise. What if the biography only told the story of Godwin's early life before he met Wollstonecraft and became a father? Or what if she tweaked details about when Godwin and Wollstonecraft actually married? Ultimately, none of these plans were feasible. She also decided against publishing Godwin's last manuscript, an argument against Christianity. She knew what sort of drama that would bring down on her, and she didn't have the energy or the heart to put her son through it, either. All of this brought more judgment down on her from her, quote, friends, especially Trelawney. Doing what's right for yourself isn't always easy, um, but Mary made the tough call and she stuck to it. Anyway... Backtracking to 1837, a year after her father's death, 
40-year-old Mary finished another of her own novels, Faulkner. This is the first properly Victorian novel in her bibliography. A year later, in the summer of 1838, Mary finally got the chance to do something she'd been biding her time for, publish a collection of Percy's poetry, openly. Now, this requires a bit of backtracking. So, Sir Tim's first lawyer had passed away sometime in the interim of these years that we've been flying through. And the new lawyer had a soft spot for Mary. So he convinced Sir Tim to pay Percy Jr.'s tuition at Cambridge, and the cherry on top is that he also convinced Sir Tim to let Mary publish a volume of Percy's collected works. Sir Tim caved on the poetry and essays, but not on the biography. But still, this was a huge victory. So to get around part of this restriction against biography, Mary decided to heavily annotate the collection, giving context to Percy's work as an editor instead of a biographer. So imagine her diving into his project, visited by the ghosts of all of their younger selves, Jane turned Claire, Mary's babies, Clara and William, Clara's own child, Alba, Fanny and Harriet and Lord Byron and Polidori, all of the old cast rummaging around in her head. The hopes she'd had and the life that she'd planned all came rushing up and out. In the writing, she learned the truth about Harriet. She hadn't been unfaithful to Percy, she'd just become too mundane for his ideals. But this wasn't something she was prepared to share with the world. Percy's reputation was sacred to her, and even if it hadn't been, his reputation was Percy Jr.'s future. She did indicate that she was leaving things out. In the preface, she noted this is not the time to relate the truth. So she gave as much detail about their personal lives and the context in which things were written as possible without touching on anything that she thought would be scandalous. And in doing so, she worked herself to the bone, noting in February 1839 that she felt, quote, torn to pieces by memory, end quote. Critics, especially Trelawney, objected that she'd left too much out. She and Moxon decided to update the volume with more material. Then she ducked her head and forged on. She moved from the poetry volumes to the prose volumes. By 1840, she was finished with the complete four-volume edition. Even though people judged her, and even though she agonized over whether or not she was mutilating Percy's work, the fact is that her editorial work made a very revolutionary figure palatable to the very bourgeois sensibility of the early Victorians. He might never have made it into the canon without her careful framing. In the process of this work, Mary reinvented her own reputation. Her fame started to grow. In the early months of 1839, for example, her portrait, painted by Richard Rothwell, was displayed at the Royal Academy. And she'd begun to make new friends, from Benjamin Disraeli, who had become Prime Minister, to Thomas Carlyle and his family. And I don't think she was this petty, but we can be on her behalf. Around this time, she got to watch Trelawney get run out of London society after he eloped with a married woman. Another one. But though she'd managed to put most of the toxic people in her life behind her, life wasn't done throwing curveballs at Mary yet. In 1839, Mary received some news. Remember Aubrey? Second love of her life? Or maybe third? Well, one day, Mary learned that Aubrey's wife had died in a drowning accident on their land. Next thing she knew, Aubrey was on her doorstep. Proverbially, I'm not exactly sure how or where this all went down. As if no time had passed at all, he's there, wanting comfort and companionship. He has four small children, and he's overwhelmed. Mary doesn't turn him away. Before long, they're spending lots of time together again. What could come of all this? In her journal that summer, Mary wrote, quote, Another hope. Can I have another hope? End quote. But Aubrey wasn't divulging anything about his future plans, and he had a period of mourning to go through before he could remarry with society's approval. So Mary, older and wiser now, decided to forge ahead with her own personal plans instead of waiting around for Aubrey to make up his mind. She and Percy decided to go to Europe after two decades away. They set out for Italy in June of 1840, and Mary exulted at the freedom of the road. With her son, she revisited all of her old haunts. 
They traveled up the Rhine. They crossed the Alps. They visited Lake Como. The trip dredged up old emotions, and it also seemed to cause physical symptoms. Mary had frequent headaches, fatigue, and tremors. She thought it was just emotional overload. Too many ghosts from the past rushing over her all at once. But it was actually the early signs of brain disease. Mary didn't forget about Aubrey on this trip. She wrote him lots of long letters, trying not to let slip how much she hoped they might build something together. She confided these hopes to her journal, longing for a, quote, union with a generous heart, someone she could, quote, comfort and bless, and she dwelt on Aubrey's, quote, inalterable gentleness and affection, end quote. But she feared that nothing could come of this revived closeness. And she was right. Aubrey didn't write back. Months went by. Percy Jr. returned to England for university. Mary headed to Paris, hanging out with old friends and fans of hers and Percy's. A letter from Claire brought her some bad news. Aubrey had pulled the same trick for a second time. He was engaged to another woman. Mary couldn't face London right away after that news, so she stayed in Paris through January of 1841. She returned home depressed and embarrassed shortly thereafter, but as usual, she hid her inner turmoil, focusing instead on her one constant, Percy Jr. He would turn 21 that year and graduate, and Sir Tim planned to increase Percy Jr.'s income to £400 a year, so things would finally get more comfortable. They celebrated Percy Jr.'s birthday by buying new furniture and moving to a better neighborhood. Later that year, in June, Mary Jane passed away. She wanted to be buried next to Godwin in St. Pancras Churchyard. So basically, Wollstonecraft, Godwin in the middle, Mary Jane on the other side. And apparently, it happened for her. Claire, who'd taken care of her mother in her final years, stayed through the funeral and then borrowed money from Mary and headed off to Paris. Though neither Mary Jane or Claire had been real sources of comfort for Mary, they were the last of her family, the last ties to her old life. Alone, Mary wanted to spend more and more time with her son. But even though Percy loved her, he was at an age where he needed some independence. He didn't want to live apart, but he didn't want to spend all of his time with his mom, either. He wanted to spend his time with other women. But he was a dutiful son, and he brought his love interests home, if they merited that um, level of seriousness, letting Mary interrogate them to make sure they were good enough for her son. Apparently, though, things got serious with someone Mary didn't approve of, because she lured him to Europe in 1842 to distract him from the woman. The trip was rough, um, basically the whole time for Percy Jr. because he didn't want to be there, but for Mary until they got to Italy. There, she found some measure of peace by searching for the graves of her babies, Clara and William. She didn't find them because, as I mentioned in our last episode, they had not been marked with any sort of stones or memorials. Um, so she moved on to visit Percy's grave, which was easy enough to find because it was enormous. In August of 1843, after a year of traveling, Percy Jr. mutinied. He didn't want the trip to begin with, and at 23, he wanted to exert at least a little bit of control over his life. He missed England, the only home he really remembered. So he headed home ahead of his mom, and Mary visited Claire in Paris. Back in England that fall, Mary and Percy moved to a small cottage in Putney. Mary wrote Rambles in Germany and Italy, a kind of travel dialogue of their recent trip in emulation of and tribute to her mother's own travel book, which we mentioned in episode 15, part one. The next spring, a long-awaited event occurred. Sir Timothy, Mary's arch-nemesis for all of these years, passed away. Percy Jr. became Sir Percy, and he came into ownership of Field Place, the ancestral home of the Shelleys. But this was not as great of news as it sounds, because one, Lady Shelley had made off with all of the furniture, every single scrap. Two, Percy had promised so much money to Claire, Hunt, Hogg, and other friends, as well as to his children Ianthe and Charles, that there wasn't a lot left over. And three, Percy had been in lots and lots of debt, as had 
Sir Tim trying to keep the place in any kind of shape. So basically, Mary and Shelley suddenly owed 22,500 pounds and had no way to pay it. According to Measuring Worth, that amount, 22,500, is roughly equivalent to uh, at least 2,170,000 pounds in today's money. To work their way out of this debt, Mary and Percy sold off parts of the estate, made deals with the creditors, and started chipping away at the enormous debt by Mary writing and selling more work. Percy's old friends were relentless, hounding Mary for their money, and Claire was the worst of all. She wrote furious letters until she came to visit and discovered the truth of things, that Mary and Percy Jr. were barely scraping by. Mary and Percy didn't even live at Field Place, which was sort of tumbling down around them. They stayed in their own small cottage. It took a few years, but they finally paid off the debts and had enough money left over to buy a townhouse in London, number 24 Chester Square in Pimlico, and a yacht. Despite financial success, Mary's health was on the decline. The headaches got worse, and the doctor told her that she had neuralgia of the heart. She was in constant pain, and her tremors made writing hard. The doctors had no idea what was going on, so they diagnosed her with a standard diagnosis for women at the time, nervous complaint, which just goes to show how long doctors have been understating and dismissing women's pain. Anyway, they recommended bed rest, and Mary didn't comply. She did try a variety of cures, however, and sought out second opinions. There were brief moments when her spinal pain went away, but her headaches were pretty much constant for the rest of her life, and her chronic pain forced her into a life of sort of kind of leisure for the first time basically ever. If you can consider not doing much because you're in too much pain to do anything leisure, that is. Amid all this... Percy Jr. met a girl. He brought her home in March of 1848. Her name was Jane Gibson St. John, and she was a widow. Like Mary, she'd been widowed at the age of 24, and she respected Mary. So maybe because of that respect, Mary accepted her. Percy proposed not long after he brought her home, with his mother's full blessing, and on June 22nd of 1848, he and Jane were married. Together, Jane, Mary, and Percy planned the renovation of Field Place and moved there in the fall of that year. Mary chose to stay in her husband's childhood bedroom. That breaks my heart a little, actually. But there, in the damp environs of the house, Mary's health took a nosedive. She began to suffer periods of paralysis. The doctors told her to start taking cod oil and to rest as much as possible but they didn't have any other solutions for her. In 1849, she wrote to Claire, quote, I walk very well, but must not use my head, or strange feelings come on, end quote. Her daughter-in-law, Jane, nursed her tenderly. She would read to Mary and bring her tea and plump her pillows in between running the estate and taking care of Percy Jr. Jane, who Percy called Wren, was a fierce protector, shielding Mary from her stepsister's wrath when Claire came to visit for a short period of time and got really angry over a sort of miscommunication. And if you want to learn more about that, I recommend Charlotte Gordon's book. Mary knew that she was leaving Percy in capable and loving hands, and it must have been such a comfort to her to know that. In 1850, Percy and Jane took Mary to the south of France in the hope that the climate would do her good. It must have helped a little, because she did some touring on the back of a donkey. Oh, doesn't that remind you of part one? And enjoyed some good wine. But with the coming of winter, her pain came back. And on December 17th, 1850, a doctor finally figured out what was wrong. Mary had a brain tumor. Mary and Jane plotted to keep this diagnosis secret from Percy Jr., and they hid it successfully for one month. But by the new year, the truth was plain. Mary could barely speak. Her left leg was paralyzed. So they broke the news to Percy. And on January 23rd, 1851, Mary had a series of convulsions, much like Clara and William all those years ago, and fell into a coma for eight days. On February 1st, 
at the age of 53, she passed away. The newspapers of the time marked her passing in a curious way, so I have two excerpts from obituaries to share with you before the end of today's episode. The first was published in the Journal of Bell's Letters on the 22nd of February, 1851. We have to record the demise of this lady, the daughter of Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, and the authoress of Frankenstein, Lodore, The Last Man, and other works of less note. Frankenstein, that wild and wondrous tale, excited more attention on its appearance and has been more generally read than any of her later publications. It is not, however, as the authoress of Frankenstein that she derives her most enduring and endearing title to our affectionate remembrance, but as the faithful and devoted wife of Percy Bysshe Shelley. We may be permitted to express a hope, even thus early, that she has left sufficient materials for his biography, which still remains to be written. We know that this was an object ever present to her, though she felt that its realization would Quote, come more gracefully from other hands than hers, end quote. And it goes on in this vein, the rest of the paragraph is about Percy's biography. As you know, she was always under pressure from herself and others to produce this biography, but it seems sort of cold to regard her as a biography-producing machine on the eve of her death. So the second excerpt I have for you is from the Athenaeum, published on February 15th, 1851. And it reads, After having some years disappeared from the world of literary occupation, the daughter of Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, the relict of the poet of Adonais, died the other day. We believe in her 54th year. So, note she was 53, but would have turned 54 that August. Her health had long been on the decline. And then it quotes some of Percy's verse. Skips ahead. Those who know that these beautiful stanzas were the utterances of a real affection and the confidence of a real companionship will readily understand to what heights the genius of a young and gifted woman could be winged and nerved by the persuasions of such a spirit as Shelley's and under the influences of foreign travel. Then there's a, a bit of thoughts on Frankenstein and then it skips ahead. That Mrs. Shelley would never equal her first effort in poetical fiction might have been foreseen at the moment of the tragedy of her husband's frightful death. Which, can you just imagine me making some very <clears throat> raging sounds and sweary sailor words here? <laughs> One of those visitations, the traces of which are never to be effaced, and which bereaved the survivor of guidance, companionship, incitement to emulation forever. Ugh. In spite of such a death blow, nevertheless, the widow of Shelley, being left with the care of her two very young children... She only had one, so, yay. During many years, devoted herself to a literary labor. All Mrs. Shelley's writings have a singular elegance of tone, but all of them a pervading melancholy. Her tales of the world we live in are unreal in the excess of their sadness, while in her more romantic creations, such as The Last Man, with all their beauty, there is blended a certain languor which becomes oppressive. Hence, most of her works of imagination are unfairly neglected, the last-mentioned romance especially. Whether, however, such neglect shall be reversed on a future day or not, her Frankenstein will always keep for her a peculiar place among the gifted women of England. So now that you've listened to our extensive four-part coverage of Mary Shelley's life, I hope that you begin to sort of see the tip of the iceberg of what a complex woman and artist Mary Shelley was. Despite what you may have heard, despite what these obituaries insinuate, she was not reliant on Percy for her art, though they were co-creatives for a period of eight years. I hope this will inspire you to go out and read some of Mary Shelley's work, and I hope you'll join us in two weeks for our Mary Shelley writing episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Bye. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. 
Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine in My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive.